Welcome TTB community. I'm Elliot Shibley, and here with me, as always, is the tenacious Robert Domeno. Thank you. Have we not used tenacious? That's that seems like a good one, and I'm surprised you haven't used it yet. If, yeah, if we have. I thought yeah. it was. I thought it was fitting. I think it's fitting. It, we we really need to make that list. Amanda even said it that we need to make a list of all the adjectives we've used, so we don't reuse them, and so we also know what we've used. Yeah, we we should. Um, we'll get our we'll get our intern to do that. Yes. Our intern. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, DTV community. So uh, before we get into the episode, I just want to uh, let you know that you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just as for insight, um, all of our guests provide us pictures that coincide with the conversations we have with them. We post those to social media. So if you listen to the podcast and then you want to back it up with, uh, with visual aid, uh, you can do so. You can also reach out to us in the, in the comments section, you can engage with the guests that we had on and maybe discuss whatever that topic was. It's a really cool way to just bring us all together tighter as a community as we're trying to do. Uh, also, if you're a first time listener, please subscribe to the podcast. We release uh, episodes with new guests, new adventurers, travelers from around the world on a weekly basis with the exception of the first Monday of every month where we release a news episode called Travel Bites, where we go back into the previous month and dissect the biggest travel and adventure related news. So if you're into that type of stuff, hit the subscribe button and, uh, and, and we'll, we, we're glad to have you on board. So lastly, uh, we have a website. Uh, and on that website, you can get recommendations on some travel gear. You can book trips. And it's just a, it's a good resource and, and tool to coincide with our podcast. So check that out as well. All right. Uh, trivia question, right, Elliot? Right. Where I'm at? Okay. So to, to answer last week's trivia question, it was from uh, Amanda, the thoughtful traveler. So the question was, what is Amanda's favorite thoughtful travel book? And if you answered The Art of Traveler, or the Great Well Railway Bazaar, then you got it correct, and we will send you a Traveler's Blueprint sticker. Thank you for participating. Elliot, who do we have on the podcast today? So our guest today is a three-peat. That's right, a three-peat. And I, many of you can probably guess who that is, especially from the title. And this episode solely focuses on ancient Aztec and Central American culture's use of psychedelics and how it translates to the future and present day. And coming on the show again is our favorite amateur ethnobotanist and owner of Ethnoco in Peru, Scott Light. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Scott, welcome back to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast for now a year. This is your third time. This is a, this is a, a third. Yeah, that's right. Thank you guys for uh, having me again. I really enjoy these conversations. It uh, gives me a chance to sort of collect my thoughts on different things. And uh, yeah, it's great fun talking to you guys. Well, yeah, you have a ton of knowledge on something that's very interesting to Elliot and I, and obviously to yourself, but there's just so much involved in, uh, in, in how these plants relate to culture and more than we're going to be able to cram, even in this episode. So we're going to try it, um, but we've already been talking about having you on a fourth time in the near future um, before you end up leaving for Peru. So the goal is to get you on at least one more time because then once you're in Peru, you're not going to have the service required to, to yes. allow get to do this. Yeah. The internet in Peru is pretty slow and uh, I don't think I would come through very well. So best to do it before I leave. But yeah, to, 
Today, uh, I was going to talk about the Aztec, Mayan, and basically Mesoamerican entheogenic complex of, uh, of ancient Mexico. <laughs> Let's do it, man. Yeah. Let's so, do it. Yeah, this is a region of the world that's incredibly interesting to me it's because I, I love ancient civilizations and something about this region with the temples that they built, uh, the, the, the uh, design of the temples um, has always been interesting and plus growing up with indiana jones that kind of helps too um, absolutely you know before we jump into it i wonder do you know the answer to, as to why these indigenous populations built such incredible structures in central and south america but then did not build any structures close in size in northern america well um i can't remember the name of it right now but you do have there was a large uh city-like place in North America. It was somewhere in the Midwest. I want to say like Missouri or something like that. And it was the, it was the mound builders. Um, yeah. So they built out of wood and dirt. So you can still see the mounds, but obviously everything they built out of, out of wood has decayed. So th there was some of that in North America. Um, you know, there's this sort of this idea that's been perpetuated by um, white or European culture that, that North America was this empty, uh, place to be conquered. And that's really not true. Um, you know, you had the Iroquois Confederacy up in what is now New England. And then out in the Midwest, as I was saying, you had the, these mound builders. Um, so there were fairly complicated uh, Native American civilizations. They just didn't build with stone. And for some reason, when people don't build with stone, we just don't, we don't look at it the same way as those who do. It's also harder to find them after 5,000 years. It's also harder years. to find them. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so there is evidence that there was fairly advanced and complicated and large cities in North America, but they don't—they still don't quite compare to what you had in the Andes with the Inca and what you had in Mesoamerica with the Aztecs and the Maya. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, if you guys want to jump right in, I'll let's yeah. do it. All yeah, right, let's do it. Take the lead. So what I'm going to start with is okay, and there's in this. Um, in this talk, there is going to be a lot of words that I do not know how to pronounce because <laughs> so, they're Aztec words and whatnot. So I'm just going to do my best. Um, but if anyone's listening to this and you hear me mispronounce something, that's because I've never seen it or I've never heard it spoken. I've only seen it written. So the, the first thing I want to talk about is the, and here, here's one of the words, the Zochipi statue um and i can spell that it's x-o-c-h-i-p-i-l-l-i -L -L -I. but we're gonna call him the god of flowers because that's his that's uh, way easier <laughs> yeah because that's his his colloquial name so the god of flowers is a little statue i think it's about maybe eight to ten inches high and it shows a shaman in the throes of, of an ecstatic state he is under the influence of various hallucinogenic plants or entheogenic psychoactive plants. And his body is covered with depictions of the various plants that he has ingested to reach this state. Um, this was a, a statue made by the Aztecs, and it was found, I think, sometime in the 1800s. So the, the plants that cover his body, we're going to talk about those in addition to some of the other plants that were used by the Aztecs. So I'll just go ahead and list uh, some of the plants we're going to talk about that are on the statue. Um, <clears throat> and these are of course, anthropologists' interpretations of, of what the plants may be. So it's not 100% certain, but with the you know, archaeological evidence, um, this statue itself, the codices that they, that they found that the, the Spanish didn't destroy, I think there was a friar 
or some uh, conquistador priest or something who ended up saving two or three codex or codices. The rest were burned by the Spanish in this, this uh, great cleansing uh, done by the Spanish sometime, I believe, in the 1500s when they were trying to dismantle the Aztec culture. But anyway, um, his body's covered with plants, and those include morning glory, a plant called uh, jamia, jamia uh, mushrooms, tobacco, and a few other plants that are sort of not 100% certain. Some of them may have been uh, detura or related plants like that. So we'll go through those plants today. I like the party. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll just talk in general about the the Aztecs for a second. Um, for those who don't know, they were a, a Mesoamerican culture that conquered many of the tribes that lived in Mesoamerica. I believe the Aztec and Maya were contemporary, and the Maya may have been conquered by by the Aztecs, who were a bit more powerful. Um, they lived on a lake, and I cannot remember the name of the lake right now, but basically they had a city that was in the middle of this lake, and they, they were great conquerors, and their society was based around, um, it was a hierarchical society, so you had people at the top, people at the bottom, and the guys at the top, especially the priests, were very, very much into using psychoactive plants. Nowhere else in the world do you find uh, a culture that was so connected with various psychoactive plants. I mean, they use everything from tobacco to, to mushrooms and everything in between. But it was mostly the priesthood that, that took these things as well as the elites. They would take them in divination ceremonies, during festivals, um, and at other important various times in the year. So I figure we'll jump right into one of the more common ones, uh, or awesome. one, of the more, one of the more well-known ones. Yeah, the, that lake is Texcoco, or Texcoco? Yes. And it's Tenochtitlan. Yes, exactly. Thank you guys for... Uh, for remembering that for me. So, yeah. Oh, the, he Googled it. Don't give it uh, For Googling it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's right. With the power <laughs> of Google. I was confirming my suspicions. <clears throat> right. <laughs> so, um, the mushrooms, the magic psilocybin containing mushrooms in Mesoamerican Mexico, and still to this day, they're used by various uh, small tribal groups. I believe the Mazatecs still use them, maybe the Zapotecs. And these mushrooms in ancient Mexico, their sort of colloquial name was known as the little laughing children. And why they were called that, I don't exactly know, but that's what they were referred to as, the little laughing children. So these are the typical magic mushrooms that you're thinking of, uh, psilocybe species, paniolis species, and they had about 10 or 12 different species that they used. So the elites and the priests would use these, and they would often mix them with, uh, with cacao, with chocolate. And it's known today that, that chocolate has some MAOI effects, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, which would potentiate the, the power of the mushrooms. So they would make this drink out of cacao and honey and mushrooms and other various things. And it was said that they would drink them at festivals. And then um, the quote I have written down here is uh, that when the mushrooms took effect, they would dance and then some would cry or laugh as the effects became more powerful. So it seems like they were getting pretty... Uh, Pretty yeah. ripped on on the mushrooms, <laughs> um, but yeah, these these are the classic mushrooms that you know you could you could buy. Well, you used to be able to buy them in Amsterdam, and they're they're common all over the world. Wherever there's cows, there will be 
the uh, psilocybe cubensis. Well, I'm sorry. Wherever there's cows and a warm, wet climate, there'll be these mushrooms. Right. So that's just to clarify, these mushrooms grow on cow patties. Correct. Some of them do. The psilocybe cubensis uh, species does, but there's a num- number of other species that the Aztecs would use. Some of them, there's one species, I can't remember which one, but it was known as the landslide mushroom because during the rainy season when the hills would, uh, would wash away, the mushrooms would grow in those areas. Okay. So they would be, they would be collected and, and used during these, these ceremonies. And I don't know if anyone's seen Apocalypto. Uh, Apocalypto is certainly not a historic document. It is an <laughs> amalgamation of various different times and cultures that Mel Gibson slapped together to make, I thought, a cool movie, but not a historical movie. Uh, however, there are the, the costumes they use are quite good from what I've read. And the scene where they are having this giant festival, chopping off people's heads, rolling them down the, uh, the temple. And you see in one scene there, a priest who appears to be uh, heavily intoxicated on something. And so that, that's actually a, a kernel of truth in the movie there. The Aztecs would use psychedelic entheogenic drugs in these, uh, in these festivals. So they would be taking hallucinogenic drugs and sacrificing people, which sounds, does not sound like a good time to me at all. Um, but Especially wow. if you're the one being sacrificed. Right? Yeah, definitely. So, so that's going to lead us into, a, into another plant. Uh, I, I think mushrooms are, are pretty well known, so I won't spend too long on them, just like in the other episode, I didn't spend too long on cannabis because everyone, everyone knows about that and talks about that. Well, so so those those Mayan temples or the Aztec temples, they, they were designed right to kick bodies down, and you actually they would kick the body down the, the the stairs of the temple and watch them fall, and that was part of the ceremony. Yes, they would they would uh, cut their chest open, pull their heart out while it was still beating, or that was the goal, and then they would chop their head off and roll the head and the body down the steps of this very very steep temple. Now the Aztecs believed that. If you did not give blood to the sun, the sun would literally not rise the next day and that the world would be thrown into darkness and everything would freeze and everyone would die. And, and they deeply believe this. So that's why, they, that's why they sacrifice people. So in addition to the mushrooms, they use many, many different things. And one of the things they would use during the, the ceremonies of sacrifice would be a plant called tagets, tagetes. Uh, that's the the Latin name of the plant, but it is more is more widely known as uh, yeah targets lucida, and this is a uh, it's a plant that's even today used as a spice. You can sometimes find it in nurseries, and it, it's a psychoactive plant. But it's not a psychoactive plant like mushrooms. It's not extremely powerful. It's a fairly mild plant. But apparently, this plant was powdered into a sort of snuff that would, before the, the sacrificial victim was taken to the, to the altar and had their, their chest cut open, they would blow this powder into their face to stupefy them or blow it up their nose um, to dull their senses is the quote. So this plant, uh, it grows in Mexico and it's sometimes used today uh, in sort of cleansing ceremonies. It's smoked or made into a tea and it's said to, uh, it's said to clear the mind and aid in clairvoyance. And today, it's actually it's actually used as a cannabis substitute in Mexico. So when they when they run out of weed, they'll they'll smoke this plant. Um, sometimes mixed with tobacco, or sometimes alone. And one of the uh, one of the sources I read that it said that that when they would smoke excessive amounts of it, 
they would lie down, often close their eyes, and may turn away from the fire towards the darkness. So it has a, um, a sedative effect, and uh, it's also said to alleviate crazy people and those astonished and frightened by thunder, which is interesting. But yeah, it's, it's basically, it's still used today as a spice and in a food, and, and it's something you can easily find, and, and, and that's legal. Um, again, not that I'm encouraging or discouraging anybody to, uh, to use any I, of these things. I think the craziest fact about that is that Mexicans can actually run out of marijuana. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as I was saying earlier, the mushrooms are sometimes mixed in with, uh, with cacao, with chocolate. And chocolate was extremely important, or it's better called cacao because chocolate is really a, a modern invention with, you know, cacao mixed with sugar and possibly milk and other things. But to the Aztecs, cacao was sacred. It was actually used as currency in ancient Mesoamerica. So you could buy, you know, a, uh, a bag of corn or whatever for, you know, 10 cacao beans or something. I don't know what the exchange rate between corn and cacao would be, but, <laughs> but basically it was a, it was a currency. And a, and a very important plant. And many people don't realize that, that cacao is psychoactive, mildly psychoactive. So the main psychoactive component in cacao is theobromine, which is sometimes known as the, the love drug um, because it, it, it is said – go ahead. Is it like an aphrodisiac theobromine? Is that what's yeah, also in oysters? I don't think that's what's in oysters. I think it's more related to caffeine, okay. but you know, that's, that's part of the reason why uh, chocolate is associated with, with romance and, and these different things. Um, it's more of a stimulant. It's very closely related, related to, to caffeine. So uh, yeah, the, the effects of cacao, I mean, I've eaten like a whole block of cacao before, raw cacao, and I was quite stimulated for, you know, six hours or so, uh, but it's, it's nothing extremely powerful, but it is definitely psychoactive. Something that I found interesting on your website was the cacao slash coffee tour that you do in the Amazon. That sounds pretty awesome. Absolutely. The, uh, so I call it the Valley of Stimulants tour. There's this place called Kiabamba in southern Peru. It's, it's in the jungles of southern Peru. And Kiabamba means the place of the moon in Quechua. Kia is moon and Bamba is like a place. So in that valley, they grow cacao. They grow coffee, they grow tea, and they grow coca. They grow four of the major stimulating plants, um, which are commonly used. And they, they use them for export. But yeah, we, we, we do tours there to, uh, to show people the, the different plants and, and how they're used. There, there's some evidence, originally they thought cacao was probably from Mexico, but now as they've gone uh, further into genetic studies with cacao, they actually think it comes from the Amazon, and not just the Amazon, but the region of, of Kiabamba. So this is basically the, the birthplace of cacao. And there's, there's some interesting evidence that there was exchanges between ancient Peru and ancient Mesoamerica. Now, there's no uh, real archaeological or, or written evidence of that. But as they've done genetic studies on both cacao and the tomato, so the tomato started its domestication in ancient Peru, and it finished its domestication in ancient Mexico. And it just blows my mind that, you know, as we were talking about earlier, um, sort of this myth that has been perpetuated that, that the Americas were this empty, you know, besides uh, Mesoamerica and the Incas, that it was this empty, open place for Europeans to come and occupy. Well, it, it wasn't. As a matter of fact, the, the most recent estimates about how many people lived in the Americas before Europeans came 
is 100 million. That's the upper estimate, but 100 million people. And by the 1600s, 90% of those people had died, mostly from disease. Wow. Oh, my God. Yes. Wow. So you had, and in some places, it was up to 98% of the people uh, among certain groups and tribes. So you had it, you know, likely 90 million people who died from disease. Yeah, that, that's incredible. I, I find it incredibly interesting um, that not only was North America occupied so densely, but that they were – they they were very different too culturally. You had all these different tribes that were at wars with one another. Uh, it it wasn't just this I don't know fantasy land where you had a bunch of people living in in harmony off of the land. It was it was still very violent, and it, it's it's an interesting history for this continent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know there is this concept of well, there's two concepts that the uh, one, that the natives were brutal savages who were cannibals and, and you know, just uh, were constantly at war. And then the other end of that spectrum is that the, uh, the noble savage uh, perspective, that these, they were these peaceful, uh, uh, democratic, you know, uh, they lived in utopia, basically. And, and neither one of those things is true. There, there were human beings just like we are. There was good ones. There was bad ones. There was violent cultures such as the Aztecs. The Aztecs were extremely violent. Um, and, and while we're on the subject of, of Aztecs being violent, there's, I notice a big difference between the, the sacrificial practices of the Aztecs and of the Inca. So the Aztecs would go out, they would capture other tribes, take the men as prisoners. Uh, you had to sacrifice warriors or it wasn't as important. So they would sacrifice the men of, of tribes, but they would sacrifice prisoners of war. Uh, basically people that they would have wanted to get rid of anyway. Um, and would have potentially killed them anyway had they not sacrificed them. However, among the Inca, I, I sort of appreciate and understand the Inca's sacrificial practices much more than the Aztecs. The Aztecs were just killing people that were unimportant to them. However, the Incas would sacrifice much, much, much less people. They did, I mean, the Aztecs sacrificed huge amounts of people, sometimes thousands, hundreds or even thousands of people during a single festival or event. Isn't wow. that kind of what they were doing at the end of their, as the Spanish were closing in, weren't they just doing like mass sacrifices? Yeah, absolutely. They were trying to, um, to convince the gods to, to come and help them uh, because the, the Spanish were obviously wreaking havoc on, um, on their culture. Yeah. And part of the thought was that the, one of the gods from this would come out of the sea and kill all the Spanish, which didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, okay, so, well, let me finish the thing about the Incas before I yeah. get off on something. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, so the Incas would, they would basically choose a member of the elites. So it would be a member of the elite Inca family. It may be, I, I doubt they would sacrifice their son or something like that. They'd pick like a cousin or something. You know, he, he, not the most important person, <laughs> but, but not an unimportant person either. And this person would actually be chosen from a very, very young age. And it was an honor to, to be sacrificed. So they would be sort of groomed uh, through their, their early years. They would be treated extremely well. They would live in the royal palace, given the best food, um, and just generally treated very, very well. And then when they were anywhere from, you know, 10 to, to 18 or 20, they would be taken to the highest peaks up to the glaciers and, and above the snow line. And they would often be drugged with, uh, I don't know if you guys remember the plant we talked about, uh, Brugmansia or Datura, one of the baneful botanicals or hexing herbs 
they would be given a brew of chicha. Chicha is fermented corn beer, but this special chicha had the seeds of one of those uh, very dangerous plants added to it. They would drink it, and when the, uh, the child or, or young person became sort of stupefied, they would just bash him in the head with a club and, and kill him. And then they would leave them up there as a sacrifice to the mountains. But, I mean, you're talking about the Incas would sacrifice people in the single digits or in the tens, whereas, and they would sacrifice important people to them, whereas the, uh, the Aztecs sacrifice hundreds upon hundreds. Wow. <clears throat> yeah, I don't think I would have been nice to be in the Aztec culture. Isn't it interesting how, how human sacrifice has played such a big role in cultures around the world? Yeah. Sacrifice in general. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, even look at Christianity with the self-sacrifice mm -hmm. of, of yep. uh, Jesus, right? So, yeah, human sacrifice plays a role throughout the world. Absolutely. What, what was the, what were we, sorry, give me a second. What, what were we about <clears throat> to, uh, to go off we on? We were before? in chocolate and then went into Incas, yeah. Spanish colonization. When I said I needed to finish my thing about the Incas. Oh, I was talking about the the Aztec god, but I think it was Quetzalcoatl, which was Mayan. Yeah. Okay. So we'll go back now. So yeah, there was also this myth among the Aztecs. And, and part of the reason they, the Spanish were able to uh, do as much as they did. I mean, disease played a huge role. The, the Spanish and Europeans did not conquer the new world. Disease conquered the new world. Without the disease, had the ancient, um, natives of the new world have been resistant to the disease, I think we would see a very, very different, uh, a very different modern North America and South America today. But with the, the help of disease, the Spanish and other Europeans really were able to com almost completely destroy the cultures of the new world. So why, wasn't, why didn't disease affect the colonists as much as it did the indigenous? Well, they were the ones that brought the disease. They All had right. the immunity, right? Right, but exactly. indigenous still had disease. They Correct. had their own diseases. Correct. The, so there, there's been some studies done that show that the immune system of the natives of the Americas was much more resistant to parasites. Um, so like parasites in the water, uh, you know, just sort of things that'll give you diarrhea or, or make you sick in that way. And there's actually a sickness called Montezuma's Revenge that the Spanish yeah. would get. And they would get the, the poops really bad, terrible diarrhea. Um, so the, what, is, uh, what's, what do you always die of on the Oregon Trail game? Dysentery. Oh, dysentery. dysentery. Yeah, yeah. You died of dysentery. Yeah. Um, so the, the New World natives, their immune system was geared towards fighting off parasites. And the Old World uh, cultures were geared, their immune system was geared towards uh, bacteria and viruses. So one of the reasons why the ancient Europeans had resistance to these things is because of the domesticated animals like the cow, the horse, uh, the goats, the pigs. These are things, uh, these animals have bacteria on them and the ancient uh, people of the old world would get these diseases basically from their animals. And then they would spread through society and over hundreds of years, the Europeans uh, built up immunity towards these things. However, in the Americas, you only have a couple domesticated animals. You got the turkey, you got llamas and alpacas and guinea pigs. And other than that, you don't really have any 
really many domesticated animals at all. There may have been a couple more I'm leaving out, but that's that's pretty much it. So the the old world people that came over, even though they weren't resistant to the parasites, the parasites weren't as impactful as the diseases that they brought. Exactly. Or they had more modern medicine to be able to handle parasites. No, I don't think, I think the Aztecs had much better medicine than the, than the ancient uh, or the Europeans 500 years ago. The, really? the, I'd say okay. the New World natives had much, much better medicine. However, the, I, I, don't know, I don't know the exact reason why the parasites were not as deadly as, as the old world diseases. Um, but I mean, you had things like influenza, um, you know, the flu. And let's see, what's another one? Uh, smallpox. So I read, I read at one point, they, the Europeans knew that diseases were impacting these Native Americans and they would actually get like blankets and rub them in smallpox and give them as like a, they would pretend to be a nice gesture and give the Native Americans these blankets that they knew were infected with smallpox, knowing that they would spread the disease and clear out a large portion of the population before they move in. Exactly. Yeah, that's horrible. actually... That's a story from North America. I think it was uh, it was our ancestors that, that did that one. <laughs> so nice. Yeah. 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 Uh, but so we've talked enough about disease. Let's get back to, <laughs> yeah, 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 Let's yeah. Get back yeah. to the psychoactive plants. Um, so the next one we'll go to is a, another fairly probably well-known plant to many people, but that would be uh, peyote, uh, Lophophoria willamsi. And it's known in Wichol. Uh, the, the Wichol are a group today. Uh, I, so... Outsiders call them Wichol. The Wichol call themselves Wixaritari. Wixaritari. I think I'm saying that correctly, but that basically means the people in Wichol. So as a uh, gesture of respect, I like to call them what, what they like to be called. But they're more commonly known as the Wichol. So the Wichol still exist today, and they're one of the main peyote-using groups. Uh, another group is the Tarahumara, which also use peyote. But let's... Uh, Let's talk about what peyote is first. Peyote is a small, round, uh, low-growing cactus. It usually grows under bushes or in like cracks in rocks. And it grows, I believe, in, in Chihuahua, around Chihuahua. It's basically in the southern U.S. and northern Mexico, right around the border area. In the U.S., it's very much endangered. In parts of Mexico, it's also endangered. But there's some other areas in Mexico where it's quite prolific. However, the issue with peyote is it's extremely slow growing. Uh, and if you don't harvest it in the right way, you'll kill it. And uh, what you need to do to harvest it correctly, if you were, well, let me say this first. I don't recommend that anybody takes peyote unless you are an ind indigenous Native American and it is an integral part of your religion. I wouldn't recommend anyone take peyote unless they grow it themselves. And of course, this is illegal in the United States, so I'm not suggesting anybody do that. But there are legal uh, churches such as Peyote Way in Arizona. It's a, it's a peyote church that is open to all people. I believe their cases went all the way to the Supreme Court and under the, the First Amendment is freedom of religion, right? Um, I believe under the, the First Amendment, they were able to convince the government to allow them to use peyote. So if you go to Arizona and you're a part of the Peyote Way Church or another one of these uh, sanctioned churches, you can legally use peyote. Uh, but yeah, again, peyote is very endangered in certain areas and it's very slow growing. So, you know, I would suggest people, if you want to do something like that, I would suggest you go to Peru instead and use San Pedro, which is a fast growing cactus and they contain the same active ingredient, which is mescal. Okay. okay. And, and it, it, 
the the experience is supposed to be similar to psilocybin mushrooms. Is that um, correct? So, <clears throat> no, I wouldn't say so. I I would say so. LSD, uh, DMT, and psilocybin are all tryptamines, whereas uh, ecstasy, MDMA, and mescaline are femethymaline. So it's in a different it's in a different family of chemicals. Now, excuse me. Now. The mescaline would have, I would best compare it to uh, taking a little bit of mushrooms and a little bit of MDMA together. It's sort of a psychedelic, um, it's a psychedelic, but you feel quite happy. Uh, it has that feel good euphoria of, of ecstasy. So it, it's, it's unique. Hunter S. Thompson actually called mescaline the, uh, the Cadillac of psychedelics, which I don't know exactly <laughs> what that means, but it sounds, it sounds good. <laughs> hmm. um, but yeah, so peyote contains mescaline as San Pedro does. And actually we have some of the oldest direct evidence of, of entheogenic plant use from peyote. There's one uh, evidence of San Pedro, which is, which is older, but there's this cave in, I believe it's in Southern Texas, and I think it's called the Shumula Cave. And in this cave, they found ritual items and various, uh, various objects that would indicate a, a shaman was working there. And in addition to those objects, they actually found dried peyote that was over 5,000 years old, still sitting in this cave. Wow. Uh, so absolute direct physical evidence. It's not a cave painting that needs to be interpreted and, oh, maybe they were, you know, maybe they were using psychedelics, maybe they weren't. No, they have the actual dried plant right there. Well, and isn't, isn't peyote still legal in Texas? Like you can't grow it, but you can harvest it. If you are a member, if you're a member of a Native American tribe, or if you're a member of one of the sanctioned peyote churches, yeah, okay. uh, then it's legal. However, it's not legal if you are, are just some, somebody that wants to do it. You got to join one of the churches or, or get some sort of, some sort of permission. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, but an interesting thing about the peyote they found in the Shamula cave is that it actually still contained, after over 5,000 years, it still contained 2% mescaline. So that tells us that mescaline is a very stable chemical and will last a, a very, very long time. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, the, the peyote mostly was used in, in Mexico in ancient times, but the, the use of peyote began to slowly move north. Um, especially in the 1700s and more so in the 1800s, so not that long ago. And even today, there are tribes in Canada that use peyote, which is very, very far from its, its native range. But over time, uh, different native groups interacted with each other and basically passed the peyote on. Before peyote, there was this plant called the mescal bean. Um, and don't think it has mescaline in it because it's called mescal bean. I was actually reading a source uh, last night that said that this bean contains mescaline. It absolutely does not. It is, uh, it is quite dangerous and poisonous. So when peyote was introduced, most of the natives said, forget the mescal bean. We're going to use peyote instead because it, it won't kill you if you take too much. But the mescal bean can still be seen in the, uh, in the shaman's toolkit sort of as a, as a necklace or as a good luck charm but it's no longer ingested. It, its use was mostly replaced by, by peyote because it's so much safer. Hmm. And what are the, why is uh, San Pedro safer than peyote? What are the side effects that makes it so well, dangerous? It's, it's not safer. They're, they're both very similar. Uh, it's not safer. The reason why I suggested people do San Pedro over peyote is because the peyote is endangered and so slow growing. 
Whereas, okay. Yeah. Whereas the San okay. Pedro. Gotcha. I mean, there's places in Peru where the San Pedro covers like every inch of the hills and it grows very, very fast. So it's, it's much more uh, ethical to, to harvest San Pedro than it would be. Is a- there a process that you need to take like cooking it or, or preparing it? So one of the interesting things about peyote is th- there's very, very few uh, entheogenic or psychoactive plants that you can just directly pick and use. Peyote is one of them. The only other one I can think of is mushrooms, that you can literally just take a knife, cut it out of the ground, and eat it as it is. Most everything else has to be prepared. Like San Pedro needs to be cooked for a very long time. Uh, Peyote can be made into a tea, but it's most often just cut from the ground and just eaten as a whole. Some of them are as big as apples. And yeah, it's one of the first readily available uh, hallucinogens that you you can just pick. And would an apple be one dose or would you maybe eat like a bite of an apple? <laughs> so there is, you know, probably a, a, a typical dose would be th- maybe three decent sized peyote buttons. They call them buttons. However, the Native Americans in their, in their all night ceremonies, they sometimes eat 20, 30, 40, 50 of them. I mean, they, they really, really go hard wow. in order to, uh, to meet the, the great spirit. <laughs> And uh, peyote has been used quite effectively among various Native American groups as a cure for, for alcoholism. And it's, it's uh, said to be very effective for that. Do they just get hooked on peyote? No. Um, peyote probably, uh, even among the Native American groups who do it quite frequently, they might only do it like two or three times a month. And I, I think that's uh, even a lot. So sometimes, I... sometimes they do it maybe once a year or something like that. Slightly unrelated to peyote, but um, I was watching both a show on Netflix and Mm -hmm. then a podcast produced by NPR on the effects of psilocybin and how they're actually changing people's psyche to quit things like smoking. The documentary and the podcast both discussed like clinical trials where they would give a patient a pill with the psilocybin drug Mm -hmm. in it. They would connect them to, is it the EKG? No, ECG, which would everyone... um, Yeah does brain activity, I guess. Um, right. And they would, they would ingest it and they would speak to them. Now they, the, the person ingesting the psilocybin had to want to quit. Like that was a prerequisite. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't just go in and like, oh, I'll give it a try. I don't care if I quit, but they saw incredible effects of the way the brain it's not, I don't want to call it your brain gets rewired, but what happens is this is, this is the way I describe it to myself. And I don't know if this makes sense for other people, but you can almost take a step back mm-hmm. from yourself mm-hmm. And reevaluate whatever it is you're contemplating from an alternate perspective, but that's still ultimately your own perspective. And mm-hmm. then compare it to what you think when you're sober and kind of come, come to terms with a solution. And it kind of allows you to, to get a second opinion on things right. in a way. Yeah, um, de- definitely psychedelics and, and entheogenic plants are, are very effective at treating addiction. And I would say there's, there's two reasons for that. Um, obviously it depends on exactly which, which plant or, or fungus you're using, but the one thing it does is, as you said, it, it gives you a different perspective. It sort of allows you to look at your life or, or what you're doing from, from a different angle. The other thing is, is it actually has a, a you know, pharma, pharmacological effect on your brain chemistry. And I don't know how correct this is, but once it was described to me as, you know, when you use addictive drugs and stuff like that, basically your, your synapses you can think of as a spark plug. And using drugs and various things or even age basically beca- allows those, those spark plugs or synapses 
to uh, build up uh, corrosion or there are a bit of a uh, corrosion is not the right word. They're, they're, they're gummed up with, with oil or, you know, they're, they're not clean. So basically the psychedelics come in and they sort of scrub them clean and allow you to, uh, for your synapses to fire more, more clearly, you know, and I don't know if that's, I can't even remember who told me that, but that was an analogy that, that he gave to, uh, to explain how this works. So it's not only that your perspective is being changed, it also has a, an effect on your brain chemistry that helps you to clear out that addiction in a, in a physical or pharmacological way as well. Yeah, very interesting. All right. So the next plant we can talk about is Salvia divinorum. And maybe people have also heard of this one. It seemed to go through a popular phase, like in the, I want to say like the early 2000s or mid 2000s, you would, you would sort of hear about it. It would be on the news. People were talking about it. A number of states banned it. But uh, Salvia divinorum is known as, as the diviner's sage, you know, divinorum, divination. And it's still used to this day in, in Mexico. And it was used in ancient Mexico most likely, but we don't have direct evidence of that. There's a number of the codices that the Spanish, uh, that were not destroyed by the Spanish, which talk about various psychoactive plants. And uh, they've tried to discern the, the identity of these plants. Well, there's, there's one name that I absolutely cannot say. I'm not even going to attempt it because it's like, it's like 25 letters long and it's an Aztec word. But basically, they think that Salvia divinorum probably uh, fits the bill for this, for this plant. But anyway, uh, commonly when people in the U.S. or Europe used it, they would smoke it. But in Mexico, it is never, ever smoked. As a matter of fact, they say that... Uh, Salvia divinorum hates fire. It doesn't like to be burned. And I've, you know, noticed from, from what people have told me that they have quite uh, seemingly difficult sometimes experiences when they smoke it. People would, you could buy like extracts at head shops and, uh, or just the plain leaf and, and smoke it. And it would create some very, very strange effects for about 10 or 15 minutes. Now in Mexico, it's used in these, in these nighttime ceremonies for uh, divination or to diagnose disease, to uh, treat and cure illnesses. And it's either crushed and mixed with water or the fresh leaves are chewed. So if anyone out there, you know, if you're in a place where it's, it's legal and not recommending this, but uh, you should chew the fresh leaves rather than, than smoking it. And the plant is legal in, in many states in the United States. But it's, it's in the mint family. It's a fair, fairly inconspicuous looking plant. It grows about three or four feet high. And it, it's just, uh, it's got a square stem and, and green leaves. You know, you would, if you were walking through the, the forest in Mexico, you wouldn't think anything of it. But it, uh, it does have very powerful effects. And the chemicals in salvia, I believe they're just salvinorin A and salvinorin B, are fairly unique in their in their action and sort of the the class of chemicals they're in. I believe they're isoquilines, uh, which is another class of chemicals that I'm not very familiar with at all. But yeah, salvia divinorum. I remember uh, salvia um, being in the news. Um, yes. Wasn't it like killing people or something? Uh, or they're, at least they no, thought it was. In, unless, I, I would imagine the only way you could die from it is if you were driving a car <laughs> and you smoked it or if you jumped out of a window. But I'm pretty sure that it, it can't kill you from, from toxicity. I, you know uh, what I'm thinking so of? Most um, of the, 
I'm thinking of remember Spice? Did you ever hear that? It was like synthetic marijuana. Yes. Yes. That, that people, stuff's right? super dangerous. Right. Yes. Right. That right. stuff's that stuff is very dangerous. So sometimes it was being uh it was it was even being sold as like something natural and it absolutely wasn't. It was what it was was synthetic cannabinoids. So they would take um THC or a related compound, they would move some molecules around and then they would spray it on some herbs and try to sell it to people as like uh oh this is you know a uh, an all natural you know smoking blend and it it wasn't um, right that stuff's extremely powerful and extremely dangerous but the salvia you would there was like videos on youtube where some dude would smoke it on his couch and then just do weird stuff or talk to people that weren't there and you know things things like that sounds like bath salts yeah, bath salts are really spice and bath salts are really dangerous. However, uh, salvia divinorum, if you use it uh, safely, you know, most of the time when you do these things, you should have someone watching you that's completely sober, especially if you're taking a fairly high dose or it's your first time or whatever. You should have someone sitting with you that can, uh, that can make sure you're good. <laughs> sage advice. Yes, and, and, and salvia is known as the diviner's sage. So yes, indeed, sage advice. <laughs> um, so yeah, maybe the next one we'll move on to is uh, the morning glories. And there is about three different species and, and three different genera, actually, of morning glories, two of which were used by the Aztecs. But I'll, uh, let's, let's visit Hawaii and Nepal real quick to talk about Agria nerviosa which is sometimes known as the Hawaiian baby wood rose, but it's better just known as the baby wood rose. And this is uh, all the morning glories are climbing vines in the sweet potato family, the convolvulaceae. And that's, that's the family that sweet potato comes from. They have these really beautiful flowers. Uh, probably typically the one people would be most familiar with is Ipamia valacea, which is the, what's known as morning glory. It has these beautiful blue or white flowers. And it's cultivated in many parts of the world as, as just a pretty ornamental plant. And this, uh, these, these three different genera, three different plants, contain um, lysergic acid amide, basically LSA, uh, ergine, and compounds that are very, very closely structurally related to LSD. Though they don't contain LSD itself, they're, they're chemicals that are closely related. Um, during the 1960s, when the, you, know, you had the hippie uh, drug subculture in the United States, and these plants were, uh, I believe it was Albert Hoffman or Richard Evan Schultes, not exactly sure, but one of these guys went to Mexico. They, uh, they figured out the identity of the mushrooms, which had been kept a secret from the Spanish for hundreds of years. The Spanish were able to figure out what peyote was and then suppress it. But the mushrooms up until the 1950s or 60s were kept a secret from the outside world because they were considered so important that none of the natives would, uh, would reveal the secret of, of the mushrooms, as were the morning glories. So, yeah, back to uh, baby woodrose real quick. Uh, baby woodrose is used in Hawaii by poor Hawaiians as, a, as an intoxicant, as an, an inebriant. And it's also used in Nepal by Kirati shamans uh, to fly shamanically. So these, these have a history of, of use you know, in, in various parts of the world. But the baby wood rose wasn't used in ancient Mexico. It was uh, the morning glory and one called, let's see if I can say this name, uh, Olaliqui, Olaliqui, I believe. So these were the, the morning glories that were used in ancient Mexico. 
the seeds were ground. They, they, uh, the, the source I read said that they were ground by a 14 or 15 year old virgin girl and then infused in cold water, which is then allowed to sit around. And then the cold water is uh, strained and the mixture drank. So this is one of the, one of the plants that we see on, on the statue. But um, yeah, these are, these are the, the morning glory, for example, as I was saying, is, is um, at garden centers and stuff in the U.S. <coughs> and yeah, it's, so it's, that, that's something that I actually wanted to ask you about. When I was a kid, I mean, when I was a teenager, there was always like the, we would always joke, like, I don't even know where we heard it from, but oh, the morning glory, you can buy the packet of seeds from the, the nursery and you can make a tea with it and get high. Now, is that actually true? Yes, that is true. Uh, however, the, the nurseries and whatnot know about this and they sometimes will spray them with chemicals. So, you know, you need to, the best thing to do is plant the seeds, grow them. And then if the plant grows from that, you could, you could take that if you were in a place like Peru where it's legal to do so. In the United States, it is not legal to, to do right, that. Right. Wait, but so they are aren't, very there powerful. Like, aren't there thousands of different species of morning glory? Yes. Yes, there is. And so and all of, of the are, seeds have LSA. No, some of them are toxic. Uh, you want to use either Ipomoea tricolor or Ipomoea valacea. And okay. if you get one of the other ones, it might have LSA in it, and it might have a bunch of basically poison as well. So, you know, uh, don't mix them up. Yes. <laughs> that was a good yeah. PSA. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I remember hearing that as a kid. I never, obviously never tried it, but yeah. I always and wondered if it was true. So the, you, you actually aren't allowed to harvest the seeds from the Pamecia, Epimia Valacia or mm. the, mm. the other one? Uh, you, you can possess the plant all you want. It's, the plant is 100% legal. You could have a, a hundred pounds of seeds you know, in your house and there's no issue whatsoever. The only issue would be is if you were manufacturing drugs from it. So if you took the seeds and made them into a tea and you know was selling it or something like that that's that's very illegal because it's an it's an lsd analog basically so under that under the analog act it is uh it's illegal but in places like peru they don't care at all (laughs) all right yeah go peru yeah so yeah there's about three different three different morning glories and you know they're really beautiful plants uh i've I've never used them in the U.S., but I, I did grow them just because the plants are, are so pretty and, and I enjoy, you know, growing plants. Um, let's jump back real quick and touch on some, some more obscure uh, mushrooms as, as well as something that I, I refer to as the lost peyotes. So peyote is Lophophora willamsi. That's your standard, you know, the, the well-known peyote. Many uh, white people or Westerners have used peyote Lophophora willamsi. But there's other ones that I refer to as the lost peyotes. Uh, they're in the genera uh, Corythantha, uh, Epipetulantha, Pelicyphorus, Turbinicarpus, uh, Astrophytum, Areocarpus. There's, there's many of them. And these are small logos that look very similar to peyote, but they're not peyote. They're in different genus. And the reason why I say they're, they're lost, um, they're, lost to, they're lost to our culture. So we, we know about about the regular peyote, but these are reported to be psychoactive or medicinal by the Native Americans, such as the, the Tarahumara and the Huichol. Uh, Epithelanthia, for example, 
is said to uh, give speed to runners. Uh, the Tata Humata are known as some of the most, uh, some of the best long distance runners in the world. And when asked what their secret is, they say, well, we use the Apethylanthia cactus. So these plants likely have psychoactive and medicinal compounds in them, but they have not been investigated. Unfortunately, many of them are, are very much endangered. And as a matter of fact, there's one called Aztecium, which is a, a cool name, obviously referring to the Aztecs. And it's one of the slowest growing organisms on planet Earth. It looks like a rock. I believe I saw a... Uh, I saw a 15-year-old specimen one time, and it was about the size of a pea. Wow. Yes. So, I mean, one that's, one that's four or five inches across, maybe 150 or 200 years old. They live a very, very long time. So someone needs, someone needs to eventually uh, investigate these things because they could be full of you know, novel medicinal or psychoactive compounds that could be used to to treat, you know, who knows, maybe Alzheimer's, maybe Parkinson's, maybe anything, but uh, we, we don't know very much about them now. Uh, one of them has an interesting story. Uh, Areocarpus, I believe it's Reticus, Reticus. Uh This is said that if you go into the desert searching for peyote, but you have not undertaken the proper rituals and cleansing ceremonies, that sort of the spirit of peyote will trick you into harvesting Areocarpus instead. And when you were to ingest that Areocarpus, the, uh, the quote is that it will make you go mad and jump off of a cliff. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's probably, maybe it's a bit of a myth, but it's, it's basically a, a warning against not taking the proper steps and the proper respect when, uh, when harvesting peyote. And, uh, and that you need to do it the, the proper way, or you could end up eating one of these other cacti, which will make you go crazy. Wow. Also, have you guys heard of uh, Aldous Huxley and the Doors of Perception? No. I know. I, he did Brave New World, right? He did Brave New World, exactly. Um, I would encourage people to, if you're, if you're interested in the subject, to get his, uh, it usually comes like two books in one. It's Doors of Perception and Heaven and Hell. These are about Aldous Huxley's experiences with LSD. I'm sorry, mescaline. And I believe he took mescaline in the 1950s when it was still legal. For a long time, uh, psychedelics were legal in the United States up until everybody started using them and then the government decided to make them illegal. But Aldous Huxley, I believe uh, one day, one morning, he took about 500 milligrams of mescaline and, uh, and had an, an experience with the mescaline. And he wrote about it very uh, eloquently in The Doors of Perception. So that's, that's a really great, great book for those who are interested. What, what did he say about it? Oh, it, it was, I mean, he, he's, a, he's a really good writer. And uh, he described visiting cathedrals made of crystallized beams of light and uh, just really wild hallucinations. But one of the nice things about mescaline is it's, it's very safe. So while you're, you know, if you were to experience this, you can keep in the back of your mind that, that you'll be fine in about 10 to 12 hours. No, no. Staying <laughs> 10 on to par 12 with, hours? <laughs> yeah, staying, it lasts a really long time. Wow. Staying on par with, with safety. Yeah. Let's, for psilocybin, if someone were to take that on a regular basis, is there actually any negative effects or long-term effects it could have on like your brain chemistry? So I know there's a lot of, there seems like to be a lot of misinformation on it. And something that I find really interesting is that 
although it is considered a psychoactive drug, it's not a drug in the sense in in, this, in the way that your body ingests it. Ingests it. It's actually a food poisoning. Your body is just fighting food poisoning. Correct. So I have heard that, and I really don't think that's true. Um, okay. I think that comes from the fact that people have. I mean, I mean, basically, any drug we're ingesting is a is a, a poison. You know, in in a way, because it's it's interfering with your body's natural uh, mechanisms of, of functioning. So I think that that myth came about because someone harvested mushrooms with the intention of like making soup out of them and just having lunch, and then they were intoxicated by psilocybin, and then they thought they were poisoned. But from I believe from what we can tell, psilocybin, much like LSD, is very very safe. Uh, I don't think we have uh, ever found any really negative effects from it. Although there's something, I can't remember the name of the, of the disorder, but it's basically when you do too many psychedelics for too long and you'll have visual distortions in your, when you're sober as well. I think it's like little, you know, almost looks like little eye floaters that you see when you look at, at the blue sky. Yeah. So I think you can get, it's like persistent, I can't remember the name of it, but basically it could, it could cause some visual changes. But from what I can tell, that will go away if you stop. So there's basically no negative effects. Now, that's not to say that these things, as we said in, in an earlier episode, that's not to say that these things are completely safe. Uh, you very much could walk out in front of a car. You could, you could call somebody up and say something silly that or scare them or whatever uh because you're not in in your normal sober state of mind right but you know uh there it's very much like like alcohol in that you could make mistakes you could you could drive a car or something terrible like that and then unlike alcohol in that alcohol has very hard uh evidence to support that it actually harms your body in a significant Mm -hmm. way especially uh, regular use yeah yeah not just the liver, but also the brain right. and the heart. Yeah, yeah. There's there's really no evidence that that you know uh, psilocybin hurts your liver or or does anything like that. So it's it's safe from what we can tell. Uh, a quick note on on mescaline, real quick. Uh, I am very much opposed to people when you take synthetic drugs. You have to be super super careful. I know there's a lot of people that will go to you know music festivals and, and whatnot and buy like a baggie of white powder or a piece of blotter from some dude and you just you have absolutely no idea what that is. Especially now uh, in China, there's a lot of what they call research chemicals, which basically means they haven't been researched, like that they are currently researching them, that are psychoactive. They're analogs of LSD or uh, or analogs of MDMA, or, or it could just be something totally random. But people will get these off the uh, the dark web, and they'll take them to festivals and sell them and tell people, oh, this is mescaline, or oh, this is LSD, which I think is extremely, extremely unethical. So that's why I encourage people to, you know, I encourage people to do these things legally, and you can do that by by visiting Peru or a, a place like Peru. And booking a tour with Ethnoco. Yes, 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 absolutely. (laughs) Booking a tour with Ethnoco. Um, But one thing I want to touch on real quick is that people have told me before, they'll say, oh, I've done mescaline. I'll say, oh, really? How did you do it? And they say, oh, I took a a blotter. You know, you guys know what blotter is, right? It's like a a 
piece of paper that they put LSD or other chemicals on. So mescaline is active at the 300 to 500 milligram range. So I mean, you're talking about a half a gram of material. So if anyone tries to tell you that they did mescaline on blotter, well, that's impossible because blotter could only hold a couple milligrams. So mescaline is never, ever on blotter. It's, it's going to have to be a powder. But, you know, even beyond that, I would just suggest using the plants. Uh, there are trace compounds in San Pedro and peyote that make it different from, from pure mescaline. Um, Hunter S. Thompson, uh, again, notes in, in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I think it's the other, I can't remember the other crazy guy's name, but uh, the dude pukes and he's like, oh, damn mescaline. Why do they got to make it so pure? So an interesting thing about it is that pure mescaline causes more nausea and negative uh, side effects than mescaline, which is not purified, or the cactus itself. So we don't know exactly why that is, but basically there's some trace compounds that, uh, that flavor or slightly change the experience to, uh, to make it different from just pure mescaline. That's, that's very interesting. <clears throat> hey, man. Um, and just, well, just real quick. So all of these, I just want to clarify, all of these plants are depicted on this little 8 to 10-inch statue. Um, peyote is not, we got on the statue, we have mushrooms, we have morning glory, uh, we have hemia, which if you guys could get, I know we're running out of time, but I would like to touch on the hemia really quick. Um, and also tobacco and, uh, one of the morning glories. So we're, we're missing peyote and salvia off of the statue. Okay. But, but we, we know that the Aztecs use peyote. It just doesn't happen to be on the statue. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I know we're running out of time, so I'll touch on hemia really quick. Kamiya is known as, let's see if I can say this name, Sunichichi, which is the Aztec name, and it's known as the, uh, the sun opener. So this is a plant, as I said, it's in the Hamiya genus, and they would take the herb, they would wilt it, slightly dry it, you know, leave it in the sun or something, crush it up, mix it with water, put it in a container and then put that container in the sun to ferment for, for about a day. They would then strain the, the herb out and drink this brew. And it causes a, uh, a mild drowsiness, a giddiness, a sort of a pleasant intoxication. And it creates a golden tinge around objects and around your, your vision. So that's why it's known as the sun opener because it creates this, this golden or yellowish tinge to your vision. Uh, some of the other effects from it, it causes sounds to seem far away or distorted. And uh, one of the quotes I read about it said that it allows you to recall memories and events that you may have forgotten. And even memories from, this is what the quote says, uh, <laughs> from your time inside the womb or even before you were born, which I don't know how you would have memories from before you were born, but that's what the quote says. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. interesting. That's, that's some next level uh, stuff right there. Huh. Yeah, maybe it's past lives. I, I'm not sure. That's kind of mm-hmm. wild. How do you spell that? It's S-U-I-N-I-C-H-I. C-H-I-C-H-I. Sanuichichi. Sanuichichi. And then how do you spell Hamiya? It is H-E-I. Let's make sure. H-E-I-M-I-A. It's Hamiya salsiafolia. But if you Google... There it Google is. like entheogen sun opener, you'll you'll find it. 
Okay. And that's, that's one of the sort of, for, sort of uh, forgotten uh, entheogens. You know, people know about the morning glories. They know about peyote. They know about, uh, you know, salvia now. But the, uh, the sun opener is one that's hardly ever discussed or, uh, or used in, in the modern world, although I think it's still used in Mexico in some places. But it's, it's sort of one of the ones that – and it's totally legal – and it, it sounds fairly safe, but, you know, people should be very, very careful with these things. Uh, but it's something that needs to be investigated. I'm not even sure that we know what the active compounds in it are. So, yeah. Ah. And can you define what an entheogen is? Sure. Yeah, I should have done that earlier. But uh, so an entheogen, so it has the, the root word theos in it. Uh, so and gen, like to, to generate. So it is a substance which creates a feeling of the divine it's a substance that connects you with uh divinity or with god or with uh spirituality okay yeah awesome yeah yeah thank you for coming on the podcast again today we learned a ton i always did you ever see the book on how there's this argument that the creation of christianity was was around people who were on mushrooms yeah i can't remember the name of the book um, there's an entire, yeah, there's an entire book on it. Um, yes. And, and I think it was, um, I think it was suggested that it was the Amanita muscaria, the Mario mushroom that was used. And certainly it was known in, in various parts of the ancient world to, to be uh, psychoactive or entheogenic. And actually some people theorize that Jesus is uh, his 40 days. And when he was wandering in the desert was uh, Jesus on an entheogenic experience, which, uh, you know, where he confronted the devil and, and different things like that. And there are all these experiences with like the burning bush and... Yes. Is it the sacred mushroom and the cross? Yes, exactly. It, yeah. <clears throat> Pretty interesting. Oh, that's got the... Ah, it's what? got the Mario mushroom on it. Yes, yeah, the yeah. Am- Amanita muscaria. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's some theories that uh, early Christianity was a, a mushroom cult. And there's some, I think that book may even suggest that Jesus was not a person. He was a mushroom. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> and this was written 50 years ago. Uh-huh. And, and so it's kind of hard to argue with the guy because I'm pretty sure the guy, re- he's able to read ancient Hebrew. And so unless you're able to read ancient Hebrew, it'd be pretty hard to, uh, to debate him. Not sure if he's still alive or not. But basically, that's the way he interpreted the text. But I've heard other scholars that have disagreed with this. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? It's just, yeah. it's just interesting. It is uh, interesting. Yeah. It's a very interesting idea. And, uh, you know, there's the concept that many of the, of the world's religions were at one time based in, uh, in, in the use of entheogenic compounds. As I believe we talked about last time, the Rig Vedas and, and Soma, which was also theorized to be Amanita muscaria. But if we have just a couple minutes, I'll, we'll, we'll, go to, we'll go to ancient Greece real quick. Yeah, why not? <laughs> so in ancient Greece, I can't remember which, it was a small island. It may have been like Crete or can't remember exactly, but there was a substance, and I believe I'm saying this correctly, called the Kaikion. And for hundreds, if not perhaps over a millennia, all the, the big, you know, important people in ancient Greece and the ancient Mediterranean would go to this island, uh, maybe it was Crete, can't remember, but for what they called, I believe it was the rites of Ulysses. And during the rites of Ulysses, they would ingest this substance called the kaikion, and it was some sort of entheogenic substance. They would be, you know, forever changed, reborn, renewed, 
Um, and people like Plato, Aristotle, you know, possibly people like Alexander the Great, they all went through this initiation during the, the rites of Ulysses. And it's another one, just like uh, Soma, that we don't know the exact ident identity of. But it's theorized that it may have been an ergot containing uh, beer in that they would take barley or rye that was infected by ergot. Ergot is what LSD was synthesized from. Uh, LSD is not an ergot. If anyone ever tells you LSD is natural, they're wrong. Uh, it's, it's derived from a natural compound. So they would mm. drink this, uh, this possibly uh, ergot containing brew. And there, if it was ergot, there must have been some method of preparation to re remove the more toxic effects because ergot will cause ergot. Uh, it infects grain, as I said, and sometimes people miss it, especially in ancient times. And they would go ahead and make bread with the grain that was infected with ergot. And it would cause a condition called St. Anthony's fire in which it would make you feel like you were on fire and your skin would itch and burn. Uh, I think it could cause gangrene and your fingers and toes and stuff would uh. fall off. And you would also have horrible hallucinations, convulsions, things like this. And some people think that many of the witching instances in medieval Europe were caused by St. Anthony's fire. And they would have visions of the devil and obviously be very sick. And then they had to find some old lady who practiced herbal medicine and set her on fire or, you know, whatever to stop <laughs> the, uh, the witching. <laughs> oh, man. Sounds like something out of Camelot. <laughs> yeah. Money Python. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. For those of you listening, we're actually going to have Scott on again. And we don't really know yet, but in a few weeks um, to go over animals and culture, correct? Or is it animals that use drugs? So we're going to do both. We're going to, we're going to do uh, animals that use drugs and animals that are used as drugs. Okay. All yeah. right. All right. Yeah. yeah. So that, that will be uh, that date is going to be, to be determined, but uh, right. before we get off real quick, uh, give your website name and how people can book with you. Sure. Let me do a little uh, outro bef before that, but I'll just say um, a lot of my sources for this material uh, are from a book called The Garden of Eden by a man named Snoo Vogelbrinder. I believe it's a German name. Not sure. But that's where I got a lot of this information. So that when I was reading quotes and whatnot, they're from, that's my, my source. And it's an amazing book. I think it's quite expensive, but it is like the tome of, of psychoactive plants. I mean, it's, it's an amazing, amazing book. Um, so Garden of Eden by Schnoo Vogelbreiner. And then I also wanted to say that, you know, I, uh, I'm an amateur ethnobotanist. And I wanted to mention a couple of, uh, a couple of my heroes such as uh, Richard Spruce and Richard Evan Schultes, who have, uh, as well as Albert Hoffman, who have passed away. Um, but some of the ethnobotanists, the professional ethnobotanists that are alive today, uh, would include Glenn Shepard, who's an expert on the Machinga and uh, Amazonian culture. You have Wade Davis, who we talked about uh, with the Haitian zombies. He, uh, my favorite book ever is One River by Wade Davis. If you want to read an interesting uh, ethnobotanical adventure book uh it's he's like the indiana jones of ethnobotany awesome hmm. awesome dude what was uh, that wade davis one river by wade davis it's about three different people basically uh, or four different people and their travels through through ethnobotany uh it's quite a thick book but it's one of the most interesting reads that i've i've ever come across 
And then also the, the last person I'd like to mention is, uh, is, is Mark Plotkin, who um, the, the message that I got from him and uh, I sort of, sort of uh, altered it and, and, and paraphrased it is um, basically that, you know, a lot of these people, these native people that we're talking about, they're, you know, in many cases, they're not some long lost history that has gone away. There are native people in Mexico and the Amazon today who are alive right now practicing these things and who, uh, you know, psychoactive and entheogenic plants are an, an integral part of, of their culture. But these things are slowly being lost. And if we don't preserve them now, when these, when, when a shaman dies, it's like a whole library catching on fire and, 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 you know, losing all that knowledge that was accumulated over generations. So I think the, you know, as our ancestors had, had destroyed these cultures, I think it's our job in the modern day to go and try to preserve what we can before that information is lost. Because once it's lost, it's lost forever. And we may lose something very, very important. And when you say preserve, what do you mean exactly? Do you mean that? So, for example, a, a shaman in the Amazon may know a cure for um, malaria is a really good example. Before they went to South America and discovered uh, the plant that contains quinine or quinine, which is a substance that has probably saved more lives and eased more human suffering than any other substance in human history because it treats malaria. They basically had no effective cure for malaria. And I can't remember the exact circumstances, but I believe there was a conquistador whose wife or daughter or something had malaria. And they finally went down to the jungle. They found a shaman, brought him back to, maybe they were in Lima or in some large Spanish city, can't remember exactly. And he said, oh yeah, she has malaria, you know, whatever he may have called it. And he prescribed that they take the plant that contains quinine and it just cured them almost instantly. Um, so, so yeah, we just need to preserve these things and, and, um, and not let them pass into uh, the darkness to be forgotten, but to, uh, to utilize these, these plants. Do you think there, for every poisonous plant or, and for every disease and virus and parasite in the Amazon jungle, there's a plant that cures it? I know that's a theory. Yeah, that's a, that's a theory. You know, I, I, I don't know exactly, um, but we will never know if we don't research and, and try to find out. I believe it's something like less than 1% or half a percent of the plants in the Amazon have been investigated uh, chemically, pharmacologically. So we got a long, long way to go before we, uh, before we really figure out what's out there. Yeah. We need to save the Amazon. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. We sure do. Yeah, if you guys want to know more about what I do, you can visit my website, uh, www.ethnoco.com. That's uh, E-T-H-N-O-C-O.com. And our motto is helping people help plants help people. Love it, man. Thank you. And, uh, and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Fascinating as always. I never really knew or understood how important psychedelics were and are to various cultures. And I think it's also incredibly interesting how frowned upon they are in modern culture, especially in the US. Um, even talking with a few other people about psychedelics, it's a touchy subject. Not a lot of people know about it. And I think that is an issue. Like we completely abstain from it. The government doesn't let us do anything with them, not even research them. 
Right. That that's a completely different topic all on its own. And it's actually quite interesting. If you look into the reason behind the ban on psychedelics, it actually starts with a professor who, uh, or a doctor who was researching LSD. There's actually a, a Netflix special on it that I, that I saw, but, um, it is really interesting, especially now as we learn more about it and as we, we've relaxed uh, regulations of marijuana. I'm curious to see where we're headed with psychedelics because I believe Denver and Oakland, California have already uh, um, laxed some regulations on psilocybin, but there are new studies where they're putting psilocybin, the psychoactive ingredient in mushrooms into pill form and they're seeing incredible results uh, when dealing with like anxiety and depression and and different things like that i think even epilepsy so yeah. a little bit off and topic, it's still but, federally a schedule one drug a lot of them are which blows my mind i mean that's the most ridiculous thing that that's just flat out a a false classification of yeah, I, like it, it, it's, it is it should be noted that they can be extremely dangerous like they have some horrible side effects and right. they can end up killing you if taken in bad conditions or if you have something unforeseen but right. the fact that we're not even doing anything to understand them better is what bothers me right right yeah um I mean, as always, we have Scott on and we learn a ton. So uh, thank so you for much. listening. And if you can, subscribe to the podcast. We will bring you a new traveler every week. And if you're really feeling generous today, give us a review. Give us give us a review. Write something up. And uh, we really appreciate and enjoy reading them. So yeah. thank you for listening. And as you have all been waiting for, the trivia question for Scott is, what book did Scott recommend that was written by Aldous Huxley discussing his psychedelic experience under the influence of mescaline? If you know the answer, shoot us an email at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com or shoot us a direct message through Facebook or Instagram. And like Bob said, thank you for listening. Subscribe if you have a chance and tune in next week.